Now, what do we say natural history means last year? Last Pathofarm 1. What is natural history of a disease? Okay, so natural history is what this disease will look like if it's not treated. So if it's not treated, see, we used to think that um, it was precipitous, meaning that the person was going along through life and all of a sudden, bam, diabetes. Now we realize that it's actually a period of time where it begins developing. And there's genetic susceptibility, which results in what we call a long preclinical period. Preclinical meaning the blood sugar is going a little bit up, cells are being destroyed a little bit, going a little bit up, cells being destroyed, blood sugar goes up, cells being destroyed, blood sugar go up. But it's a while until it reaches a point where we recognize, oh, that's diabetes. So it's the old, if you put a frog in boiling water, it jumps out. But if you put it in cold water and turn up the heat slowly, it boils to death. And the immune instruction takes time to occur. All right, so presentation. Remember, we said patients with type 1 diabetes, how are they usually diagnosed? What are they, how do most type 1 diabetics, the, how we know they have the disease? They end up in ketoacidosis, going to the emergency room, and being hospitalized. So they're going to have the three polys, blurred vision, and weight loss. But it's going to, that alone is probably not going to be enough to diagnose it, because they're probably just going to go, yeah, well, you know, I've been drinking a lot. That's why I'm peeing a lot. I'm a growing boy. I'm 12. Of course I'm hungry. Losing weight? Well, yeah, I've been working out. So they don't associate this with diabetes until they get so bad they end up in the hospital with ketoacidosis. Um, now, there's an interesting thing that happens to a lot of them is that they'll spontaneously go into remission. Like they'll need, they'll need insulin for a little while and then they'll stop needing it. We call this the honeymoon period. Now, the honeymoon period wreaks havoc with these poor kids' psyches. Imagine for a moment that you had all of this and then you ended up in the hospital almost dead. You survived it and you were told you have type 1 diabetes. You're going to need insulin for the rest of your natural life and even your unnatural life. What are the four sta five stages of grief? Denial. Denial. No, I don't. Then what happens? Anger. Anger. Then what happens? Bargaining. Bargaining. Now, most of the time, the kid is in one of those first three stages when this honeymoon period happens. Look, Mom, I'm better. I don't really have diabetes at all. And then what happens? Then they get worse again. So, it can be quite devastating for these kids to be diagnosed with this disease because it just really wreaks havoc with their, you know, their grief process. So, it can... So sometimes they'll be quite rebellious and not want to take their drugs and you know, deny that they have this disease at all. It can take a couple of years before they really come to terms with it. Unfortunately, during that time, guess what they're doing when they're not controlling their diabetes properly? They're killing their kidneys, killing their nerves, killing their eyes, setting themselves up for long-term damage later on.
So it's really important to try and make them understand, yes, you're going to get better. That does not mean you're healed. It'll get worse again. All right, treatment. First thing is diet. What's the, what's the number one dietary modification? <laughs> Reduced sugar. Now, they can still have some sugar occasionally, but not as much and not as often. And if they're going to eat something high in sugar, they should have something high in fiber ahead of time because it'll slow the absorption of that sugar. So tell your patients who want uh, something in their coffee, they can have sugar in their coffee after they eat an apple or a bran muffin with no sugar. Never mind. <laughs> Self-blood glucose monitoring. What we're going to teach you Tuesday people today and what you Monday people learned to do yesterday. Some of you are like, oh, no, no, no. These kids have to do this up to five times a day sometimes. Exercise. We used to tell type 1 diabetics, don't exercise, it'll only make things worse. Well, boy, were we dumb. So now you're supposed to exercise. So exercise will actually decrease the amount of insulin that these kids will need. Next one is insulin, because you destroyed their beta cells, they can't produce their own insulin, so we're going to give them artificial. And then the last one, this is the cure, pancreas, pancreas transplant. Yeah, it cures type 1 diabetes. Now, what are, the, what are the issues with pancreas transplant? Okay, possible rejection. So how do we prevent, project, prevent rejection? Immunosuppressants. Now, immunosuppressants can wreak havoc with a young child. So typically we don't use pancreatic transplants for children. We wait till they're adults. And a lot of times until they have quite severe complications before we do the pancreas transplant. And pancreatic transplants are relatively new. Um, they've been growing in number, but not nearly as uh, common as like kidney or heart transplants or liver. All right, any questions about type 1 diabetes? What is the only treatment for type 1 diabetes? No, treatment. Insulin. What's the only cure? Pancreas transplant. Um, now, maybe in the future we'll be able to use like uh, stem cell therapy to do this, but we don't yet. Now, as far as what the patient can do for themselves, what are the three things they need to do for themselves? Diet, exercise, and self-monitoring of their glucose. All right, type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a completely different disease, even though it both, they both end up with high blood sugar levels. Type 2 diabetes is the most common form of diabetes in the United States, making up about 85 to 88% of all cases. Now, we used to call it adult onset, but nowadays we have kids getting it at age 15, so they're juvenile, aren't they? Um, and if it gets bad enough, it will eventually require insulin, so we don't call it non-insulin dependent anymore either. Now, usually begins in middle age. Now, again, it can start in younger kids. Obesity almost always is present. Now, by obesity, we mean BMI of more than 30. Now, what's the problem with using BMI? People with, people with muscle like myself. Yeah. 
we are overweight by BMI. So you can't go by just BMI alone. But in people who do not exercise, BMI is a pretty good indicator of being overweight or obese. And the definition of obese is BMI greater than 30. So obesity is almost always present in people who have diabetes. Um, there's little risk of ketoacidosis because most people aren't going to be able to get their blood sugars up to 800 and 900 like type 1 diabetics can. They're going to be more at risk for the non-ketotic non hyperosmolar syndrome. So the, there's a combination of two things here. The first one is insulin resistance and the second one is decreased insulin secretion. And that's going to take a moment to take a moment to explain. All right, now, three things can go wrong for type, for type 2 diabetics at the cellular level. Say, insulin resistance. Insulin resistance. Insulin resistance. Okay, good. Now, insulin resistance can happen because the insulin receptor itself messes up. It can also happen because of insulin-like growth factor receptors also screw up. It can also happen because your cell produces less receptors. And it can also happen because the receptors themselves just don't work quite right. Then, on top of that, even if the insulin is working okay, sometimes the transport mechanism screws up. Can, can sugar penetrate a cell membrane by itself? No, it needs a transport mechanism. So the transport mechanism, no, that's not what it says, but anyway, the transport mechanism can also screw up. So say GLUT4. That's the muscle, that's the uh, muscle mechanism that tends to screw up the most. All right. This word mechanisms here is how these things screw up. So genetic defects. Insulin, or type 2 diabetes tends to run in families. So anyone here have a parent or a grandparent or aunts and uncles who have diabetes? Okay, guess what? We're at much higher risk of getting diabetes ourselves because of that. Next one is insulin receptor antibodies. Um, you can have antibodies against the insulin receptor, so it doesn't destroy the cell, it just destroys that receptor. That's one mechanism of resistance. And then you can also have accelerated insulin destruction, where your body produces normal amounts of insulin, but the insulin itself gets broken down. Not quite as common. All right, any questions so far? This gets a little tough for a moment and then it gets better. All right, insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes is a disease of? Insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes is a disease of? Insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes is a disease of? Do you think you have some kind of question like that on your test? Somewhere, somehow? And if not, maybe you think you need to know that for life? All right, obesity is the most common association with, in, with uh, insulin resistance. It results in a decreased number of receptors and a failure of those receptors to activate. We also have skeletal muscle failures. So there's a failure of the GLUT4 transport mechanism. How do you think we fix this? 
not insulin. How do most people become obese in the first place? Combination of calories in and calories out. Now, for people who do not exercise, exercise alone can help fix this part. It also has some help with these two. Now, what do we say your body does? What happens if, if you ignore, if someone ignores you? What do you do? Be more obnoxious. I was just going to say talk louder. Like my wife. There, my wife and I saw this uh, really funny one-man one play called uh, In Defense of the Caveman. And in it, he goes, you know, women are gatherers. Gatherers have to, they can't focus. They have to, like, expand their awareness of everything. Women are aware of everything all the time. Men, on the other hand, are hunters. We focus. And one of the things we like to focus the most, now that we actually don't have to hunt anymore, is television. So if we're on the television, or if we're reading a newspaper, we literally cannot hear you. So you talk to us, and we're like, until we're like, and you have to break the connection. What was that? I've been talking to you for 15 minutes. Okay. So what does the wife do? She talks louder. She waves her hand in front of your face. You know, smack you across the head. Yeah. Trying to get your attention, right? So you turn up the volume. So when cells are not listening to the insulin, what do you think you do? Produce more insulin. So what's going to happen in insulin resistance, insulin resistance leads to hyperinsulinemia. Now, what produces insulin? The pancreas. Now, how many of you have ever studied really hard for a test and then you failed miserably <laughs> and the professor said, well, I guess you're just going to have to study harder. harder. And you did study harder for the next test and you failed again. And they said, well, you're just going to have to study Eventually, what happens? You give up. <laughs> eventually, you just go, I can't do it anymore. Well, that's what's going to happen to your pancreas eventually. Okay, so insulin resistance leads to hyperinsulinemia, which is produced by the beta cells in the pancreas. Eventually, those beta cells in the pancreas will have nothing more to give. Guess what happens to insulin levels then? They begin to go down. And then what happens to our patient? Blood sugar goes up, and now the patient gets diabetes. Now, how long does it take for this to happen? Insulin resistance leads to hyperinsulinemia, burns out the pancreas, pancreas begins to fail. How long does that take? takes at least five years. So, for at least five years before a person becomes diabetic, they already have the disease process going. So, it's very important that we're able to recognize insulin resistance ahead of time. 
Now, what do we say is most likely to kill a diabetic patient? Macrovascular complications, stroke and heart attack. Well, guess what happens during this hyperinsulinemic time when the patient has normal blood sugar values? Their risk of heart attack and stroke are elevated before they ever have the diabetes disease. So some ways that we can recognize insulin resistance. First one is we call metabolic syndrome. We'll talk about metabolic syndrome in a moment. Um, type 2 diabetes itself, gestational diabetes, and then hyperandrogenism in polycystic ovary disease. Patients who have polycystic ovary disease tend to have a lot of male secondary sex characteristics like facial hair. Patients who have this are also tend to be insulin resistant and higher risk for heart attack and stroke. It's enough cells in the body. It's not necessarily every cell. Yes. No. What I'm saying is, um, the receptor, the receptor, insulin activates the receptor, which then activates a transport mechanism. The transport mechanism is GLUT4. That's one. There's several different kinds, but GLUT4 is the one that's predominantly on the skeletal muscle. So sometimes, even though insulin activates it, the GLUT4 doesn't take in the glucose. All right, metabolic syndrome. You need to memorize this. This is very useful for you. Um, waist size. 40 inches for men, 35 inches for women. I'm a waist size 35, so if I were a woman, I'd be in trouble. Triglycerides greater than 150. HDL less than 40 for men, less than 50 for women. This is one of the few times where women have a more stringent um, cutoff than men do. Usually it's the other way around. Blood pressure greater than 130 over 85. What's, what's this called? This is pre-hypertension. And fasting blood glucose higher than 100, but less than 126. If they had 126, that would just be diabetes. So fasting blood glucose between 100 and 125 is called prediabetes. So prehypertension, prediabetes, low HDL, high triglycerides, large waist. Those are the five things that make up um, metabolic syndrome. Now. In order to have metabolic syndrome, a person only needs three. So if you have a person with slightly high blood pressure and they've got triglycerides and HDL, even if they have a normal size waist, they've got metabolic syndrome, they're at risk for type 2 diabetes, they're at risk for heart attack and stroke. HDL is good cholesterol, and we'll talk about that after the midterm. Fasting plasma glucose. Yeah. All right. So you need to remember three out of five of those things. All right. We talked a little bit about glucagon. Um, 
Now, in the old days, we thought that insulin was the only thing that was important. But as we've been going on, we've been realizing that glucagon is as important as insulin, especially in type 2 diabetic patients. I remember we said, if you ever had a parent who messed, you know, you got in a little bit of trouble, they came along, tried to fix things, and it got worse. That's what glucagon can do. Oh, now we've got to introduce a new actor. See, I told you guys the story about platelets, right? When I was in, when I was in school, for nursing school, we didn't have to remember GP2B3A inhibitors because platelets didn't have those receptors and therefore we, we didn't have drugs that could take advantage of them. So then I took the summer off and went back into master's school and all of a sudden platelets had evolved and we had found new drugs to take advantage of those new receptors. So now I had to memorize new drugs. But I had two extra years to learn that new drug. So I didn't have to learn as many drugs as you have to learn. So you actually have a harder time than I did because there's more things you have to know up front. You ever hear that story before? Okay. Well, here's another example. <clears throat> I had 10 years before I had to learn about amylin. Then I was able to put it off for another two. But now we actually have drugs that take advantage of it. So you need to know what it is. <clears throat> amylin is a hormone secreted by beta cells, and beta cells inhibit glucagon. Now, does that make sense to you? Insulin and glucagon do opposite things. Insulin lowers blood sugar, glucagon raises it. So it doesn't make any sense to have a situation where you have insulin and glucagon both be high, does it? But in diabetes, that's often what happens. Now, ordinarily, your body produces this substance here, amylin, which tells your alpha cells, hey, cut out the glucagon, man. Now, in type 1 diabetes, there are no beta cells to do this, so glucagon can run wild. In type 2 diabetes, your body has choices because the beta cells still work. They can either produce amylin normally or they can not. So if your body is not producing amylin normally, what's going to happen? You're going to have high insulin levels and high glucagon levels, which is going to make blood sugar worse because you've got the insulin resistance. So we actually have drugs now that are artificial amylin. Nowadays, we have drugs that are artificial amylin, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. Because glucagon raises blood sugar, and the, your body isn't responding to the insulin because of the insulin resistance. So if you have insulin resistance and high glucagon, that makes things worse. So we can make things better by giving artificial amylin. 